Hey, I'm hoping this is going to work. What I did was I brought some stuff in and I will project it so in case you don't have your book. I wanted to look at one more passage in The Rape of the Lock, which as you will recall is going to be um, featured majorly on um, your, your final exam. Um, and then we'll move on to Blake. Um, what you should read for Monday is the Wordsworth stuff. Um, in particular, the you don't have to read the stuff from the Prelude, but um, the selections from the lyrical ballads, as well as the preface to lyrical ballads, the selections from that preface that are in the Norton. Um, do people want the table of contents again for that, so you can find it elsewhere if you need to, um, even though you have a copy? You still want the table of contents. Live a little. Okay. That way you don't have to. That way you don't have to go back to the beginning of the table of contents. Okay. So I'll send those. Um, those of you who are not here, listen carefully. That way you will. Oh, I, that won't work. Um, that way you'll know um, what the reading is for Monday as well. Um, okay. So I just wanted to point out one other um, typically amazing, amazingly typical thing that Pope does. So. What's happened here is that um, the angry friend of Belinda, um, her real name was Arabella Firmer or Farmer, um, um, gets very, very angry at the Baron for snipping, the snipping one of Belinda's locks. Um, and um, she has a long speech describing her anger in Homeric fashion. Um, and then Pope does what Homer does, which is he ends the speech by saying she said, that is, she was done um, with the speech. Having said what she had to say, she then raging to Sir Plume repairs. So Sir Plume is a new character, and what he is is a dandy. Um, he has a plume on his cap. So she said, then raging to Sir Plume repairs and bids her beau demand the precious hairs. So she says to her boyfriend, get the hairs, get the lock back from um, the baron. So she bids her beau demand the precious hairs. And then we get a little description of Sir Plume. Sir Plume of amber snuffbox justly vain. So he's got a lovely snuffbox and he's vain about how beautiful his little item is. Justly vain is a little bit of what's called free and direct discourse. Um, obviously, um, what we're getting is the narrator of The Rape of the Lock, and this is always true in parody. Free and direct discourse comes out of parody. Um, the narrator's parodying how Sir, Blue, Sir Plume thinks of himself. So Sir Plume of amber snuffbox, justly vain, and the nice conduct of a clouded cane. So he's also vain about how well he uses his walking stick. Clouded means that it's really, really beautiful, that the, that the um, uh, material that it's made of is like marble. Um, so Sir Plume, with earnest eyes and round, unthinking face, he first the snuff box opened, then the case. So what's that an example of, do you remember? First you open the snuff box, then the case. Starts with Z. Zoigma, yes. So he opens two things, the snuff box and the case. One literally, he's got a snuff box, he opens it. One figuratively, he's making the case. He's giving his opening statement in the case against the Baron. And thus broke out 
Now, here you have this just beautiful, perfect set of heroic couplets, but then what Pope has given himself the task of doing is producing an inarticulate idiot, but quoting that inarticulate idiot within the context of the, the just beautiful and graceful and dance-like unfolding of the heroic couplet. So here's poetry which always dances. That's the thing about the heroic couplet. And here is a guy who is a total klutz, who is nevertheless being quoted in this dancing poetry. So if you just, if you're an actor, and you just get what Sir Plume says, here's what he says. My lord, why, <laughs> what the devil? Zounds! For God, you must be civil. Plague on it. Tis past a jest, nay, prithee, pops, give it a hair. So none of that sounds like heroic couplets. And the reason it doesn't is because, and thus broke out, is not what he says. And therefore, he's not speaking in heroic couplets. What he says is the second half of a line, he's got basically three lines. The second half of a line then a whole line where there is a rhyme, but because this doesn't feel to him like a whole rhyme, he doesn't notice that it's a rhyme. This, by the way, was a perfect, perfect rhyme in um, Pope's time. Devil was pronounced divil. So um, this is another perfectly pure rhyme. But what he's basically saying is, what, what, what the devil? Zoons, damn the lock. But God, you must be civil, plague on it. So he has no idea he's rhyming, and neither does anyone who hears him. But we readers know that he's rhyming. So what's neat about this is the rhyme is Pope's, not the speaker's. Sir Plume isn't rhyming. He just has, says two words that happen to rhyme in some proximity to each other. But Pope sets it off, inlays it, so that it will rhyme. And that's it. These are the only two rhymed words, because his next line ends with pox, as in a pox on it. Um, but he never rhymes pox. All he says is, nay, pretty, pox. That's all he has to say. Give her the hair. Very eloquent. And then he's done. He spoke. And then Pope points out he wrapped his box. That is, he wrapped his snuff box, of which he is justly vain. Um, so that's really pretty brilliant, it, this inlay of inarticulate stupidity within the hyper-articulate brilliance of the context in which it's inlaid. And that, again, is a way that the heroic couplet is taking in its very, very high-pressure, small, miniature scale, it is finding ways to get all sorts of variety. Here you get the, the largest variety possible, variety between, as I say, the brilliance of the context and the complete stupidity and inarticulate foolishness of the quotation that the context is quoting. And then Pope underlines this, and this is the, this is, um, uh, the second part of this amazing bravura passage. Um, he underlines this by having the baron respond in a very, very smooth way. The baron knows, or pretty much knows, that he's speaking in heroic couplets, unlike Pope. I mean, excuse me, unlike Sir Plume, but like Pope. So he responds in a very, very smooth way to what Sir Plume has just said. And what you should be aware of is that, that one of the things the Baron is a parody of is Satan. That is, here is the villain of the piece who 
is who is causing the downfall of the heroine, that is Belinda, but like Satan, he is the most debonair. Um, if you know what the word debonair means in French, it means de bon air, that is having just the smoothest air about him. Um, so he is absolutely debonair. Satan you wouldn't quite call debonair, but if Satan appeared in a mock epic, he would have to be debonair. The line in King Lear, in a way that all of this comes from, is Edgar's great line, the prince of darkness is a gentleman. So here, the baron is the prince of darkness in The Rape of the Lock, in the same way that Satan is the prince of darkness in Paradise Lost. So, it grieves me much, replied the peer again, who speaks so well should ever speak in vain. So the joke is that this is not someone speaking well, but the baron in his debonair way says, it breaks my heart that someone who is so eloquent as you have been should find his eloquence wasted like this. Now, what we could say, not literally, but psychologically, our response to this would be something like, he thus broke out. That's pure narrative. That's the narrator of the poem saying that Sir Plume broke out. But the free indirect discourse, that is the attitude where we're getting the point of view of one of the characters put in narrative terms, you, is where we have that he is justly vain. Obviously, the narrator doesn't think this is just for him to be vain of his ridiculous amber snuff box, but he takes the word just to repeat as parodic. And that and parody is free indirect discourse. This is what an example of this from King Lear is the moment when Cornwall says of Kent that he cannot trifle. He... Um, he is proud of the fact that he always speaks um, directly. And um, what Cornwall is doing there is parodying Kent's self-image. So parody is, the, is a place where free, indirect discourse starts in narrative. It's when the narrator sounds the way the character would, would like to be described and when the character clearly doesn't fit in with his own self-image, we see the distinction, we see the difference and the um, tension between the character's self-image, justly vain, and the narrator saying, look at him being vain about this and thinking that he's right to be vain. Here, however, what we get is a kind of free indirect discourse where the narrator and the peer and the baron agree with each other. And so this moment, replied the peer again, is also free and direct discourse in a way that, and thus broke out, is not. And thus broke out is the narrator saying, he just exploded in words that he couldn't control, but replied the peer again is the narrator saying, he just smoothly went into his reply, and even though what he says, at least the first line and a half, it grieves me much, who speaks so well should ever speak in vain, even though that's not a heroic couplet. You need to piece it out with these five syllables, or six syllables. Um, even though it's not a heroic couplet, it's as though the baron knows that his narrator is going to piece it out. So Sir Plume does not know, has no idea, isn't trying to speak in heroic couplets, 
wouldn't know a heroic couplet if he found one in his snuff box. But the Baron lives in the heroic couplet. He is the smoothest of the speakers in the poem. And so he just waits like a dancer, as it were, for the music to fill out the line. So Sir Plume has no idea that there's a kind of metrical music here, and thus broke out. He spoke and wrapped his box. But the Baron does know. It grieves me much, replied the peer again. It's as though that's his timing. Who speaks so well should ever speak in vain. And then he goes on, but by this lock, this sacred lock, I swear, which never more shall join its parted hair. So he opens a parenthesis to describe the lock. But by this lock, this sacred lock, I swear, which never more shall join its parted hair, which never more its honors shall renew, clipped from the lovely head where late it grew. So that's like Eve taking the apple. But this is absolute self-confidence. That while my nostrils draw the vital air, this hand which won it shall forever wear. Now, um, the parentheses, as parentheses do, might have interrupted your reading a little bit. That is what we tend to do when we're reading long sentences that are interrupted by parentheses, is we'll read through the sentence, but if we lose the thread, we'll go back to where the parentheses opened and reread the sentence skipping the parentheses. So if a parentheses, which is uh, typographically something that begins with what's called a lunula because it looks a little bit like a crescent moon and then includes something that goes on and on in the sentence, um, making some point, some subsidiary point about the sentence and finally closes with another lunula, appears in a poem, then we'll skip the parentheses. So if you skip the parentheses that I just gave you in that sentence, if a, then what you would get is if a parenthesis appears in a poem, we'll skip the parentheses on a second reading. So here what we have, if you skip the parentheses, is it greasy much, replied the peer again, who speaks so well should ever speak in vain, but by this lock, this sacred lock, I swear that what? Anyone? Skip it. By this lock, this sacred lock, I swear that... Yeah, go on. His hand which won it shall forever wear. All right, Fritz. Okay, so notice what's happened here. But by this lock, this sacred lock, I swear, this hand with the, that while my nostrils draw the vital air, this hand which won it shall forever wear. So what's he done around the parentheses? Louder? Yeah. He's rhymed around the parentheses. So the first rhyme is, this sacred lock I swear, which never more shall join its parted hair. But if, while you're reading it, you say, okay, I lost the thread of this sentence, let me reread, Pope is still going to make it rhyme. So it's as though there's an, it's as though even if you cut and paste, if you cut these three lines out, you still get not even a couplet, but what's called a triplet, which you occasionally get in poems written in heroic couplets. You'll get an extra rhymed line so that you'll get three in a row. So it's, it grieves me much, replied the peer again, who speaks so well should ever speak in vain, 
But by this lock, this sacred lock, I swear that while my nostrils draw the vital air, this hand which won it shall forever wear. He spoke, and speaking in proud triumph, spread the long-contended honors of her head. So he's got the lock. But he's also, it's as though the lines themselves have been spread around the parentheses. It's as though I have this beautiful thing, all these hairs that go together and form a lock, and all these lines that go together and parallel each other in this elegant, curly-cued way. Um, so that is the kind of thing, the kind of absolutely bravura thing that Pope does over and over and over again. Pope, just so you know, is both a comic and a serious poet. Um, we talked yesterday about Eloise at Abelard. That's where the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind comes from. That's a serious and very moving poem. Pope wrote a very famous philosophical poem called An Essay on Man, um, which um, has the mo its most famous line is, whatever is, is right. He also talks in that poem about the great chain of being, which he gets from Paradise Lost. His serious poems are not as good as his comic poems. And the reason for that, although they are good, the reason the comic poems are better is that part of what the pressure of the couplet does is requires endless wittiness. And if you're saying something serious, you really shouldn't be witty. You should be direct and straightforward. And heroic couplets, on the whole, are not so good for direct and straightforward um, argument and direct and straightforward um, exposition. They work. They're great. Um, Dryden, actually, in his serious poems, is better than Pope in writing seriously in the heroic couplet. Um, but the heroic couplet is far and away at its best for comic poetry. That's why Wordsworth hated it for epitaphs, because epitaphs ought not, usually aren't, comic. Um, there is a grave in Concord that I quite love, though, which is the grave of someone named Sheila Shea, and if you look on her tombstone, she says Sheila Shea, and it has her dates. And then right underneath, it says, who the hell is Sheila Shea? Um, which must have been a catchphrase in her life. That's the only reason that it can be there. Um, but um, that's pretty funny. Generally, um, words on tombstones are not funny. And therefore, generally, couplets are not appropriate. That, at least, is Wordsworth's argument. Um, okay, moving right along. I have no good segue to Blake except to say he's very, very different. So moving right along. Um, if you don't have Blake with you, um, I've, um, again, put it on the screen um, just in case because I really want you guys to be able to see this. And um, the book, the selections that you were looking at were from a book that Blake published in 1794 called Songs of Innocence and of Experience. So one thing you should know is that there was never a book called Songs of Experience. In 1789, Blake published a book called Songs of Innocence. And then, five years later, he published an augmented version of that book called Songs of Innocence and of Experience. So it's not two books. It's one book and then a second book which contains Songs of Innocence plus a part two. 
and of experience. So the title is, this is again something to know for the exam, the title is not Songs of Innocence and Experience, but Songs of Innocence and of Experience. That second of matters. It tells you that um, innocence and experience are being separated from each other. Songs of Innocence and of Experience, not Songs of Innocence and Experience together. But that second of is a little bit misleading um, because that second of is suggesting that songs of innocence are more innocent than songs of experience are. And the reason that Blake first published a book called Songs of Innocence, and this is the most important thing you can know about what Blake is doing, is that Songs of Innocence, the concept of innocence, is not a concept you can have unless you have the concept of its opposite, which Blake calls experience. If you think about that contrast between innocence and experience, there's a whole world of human life implied in that contrast. It's not songs of innocence and of guilt, which is what we might think, um, although there's an implication that experience suggests guilt, but rather that the way life works is we begin in innocence and any experience that you have of life is going to be the opposite of innocence. That to be alive is to discover that your innocence is deceptive, that you are deceived about what life is, that innocence is a deceptive state. So let me remind you of a line from Aristotle's Poetics that we talked about earlier in the semester where Aristotle is talking about pity and terror. Um, Blake's use of innocence and of experience is actually going all the way back to Aristotle. Remember Aristotle says that tragedy awakens in an audience the emotions, what he calls the emotions of pity and terror, and those are separate emotions. Some tragedies are directed at awakening our pity, others at awakening our fear or terror. Aristotle's word is phobos, as in phobia, our fear or terror. Um, and he says the difference between that, it, the difference between those two kinds of tragedies is that pity is pity for unmerited misfortune. So we feel sad for those who are suffering when they don't deserve to suffer. Pity is for unmerited misfortune. Terror is terror on behalf of people like ourselves. And it's like, he actually says like ourself, it's um, singular. It's that like ourselves that is so powerful in Aristotle's analysis. Because what he's saying there is anyone who goes to a tragedy is a person like ourselves, someone who knows what life is really like and who merits misfortune. This is what Milton is alluding to at the beginning of Paradise Lost. We are all sinners, um, brought death into the world and all our 
woe because of what Adam and Eve have done. All of us are sinners. All of us, all of us belong to Aristotle's category like ourselves, the category of those who see in the terrified tragic figure someone who is rightly terrified because they have sinned as we have sinned. So Aristotle there gives you a very quick theory of the audience, or at least the audience for any sort of deep literature, um, like tragedy, like drama, that the audience is an audience of those who do merit misfortune who do sin, even if we are also sinned against, to quote King Lear once more. So those who have sinned make up the audience for tragedy. More generally, those who have sinned make up the audience for literature. What Blake is getting from that is the idea that if you buy a book called Songs of Innocence in 1789, if you buy such a book, you will understand what the contrast with, in, with innocence is. An innocent child, an infant, for example, does not know that they're innocent. The very concept of innocence requires its contrary concept. And that concept is the concept, you could say, of guilt or of wrongdoing or of contributing to the wrong of others, to the wrong that's done to others. But calling that experience means this is inevitably what happens in life. Everyone eventually becomes a wrongdoer. Um, it will happen to everyone. So when we read the Songs of Innocence, what we might wish and this is something that um, we're going to look at um, a couple of poems that demonstrate this very powerfully. What we might wish is that we are seeing a world of those who are exempt from the world of woe into which we ourselves have fallen. But what Blake will always want to bring us to see is that the innocents, the innocent beings in his world have themselves been subjected to wrong by people like us. That is, to be innocent in Blake, and there are many innocents, but to be innocent in Blake is to be a figure of unmerited misfortune. So um, let's start by looking at the poem. Actually, I want to start by looking at um, two poems. A lot of the poems, but, but um, not the majority of the poems in Songs of Innocence and of, of Experience are paired. Um, it's uh, close to half, but not quite half. Um, so one of the pairings, of course, um, or maybe not of course, the of course pairings are poems like the innocent version of Holy Thursday, the experienced version of Holy Thursday, the innocent version of um, the nurse's song, the experienced version of the nurse's song. Not quite as of course, or one more, the innocent version of the chimney sweep, the experienced version of the chimney sweep. Not quite as of course, but close enough is the innocent version um, of the poem, the tiger is the poem called The Lamb. The experienced version of the poem, The Lamb, is the poem called The Tiger. 
So the lamb begins with the question, a little child saying to a lamb, little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? In the tiger, far and away the more famous poem, it's what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? And so the question in both poems is the same. Who made the lamb? Who made the tiger? The last line before the refrain in the last stanza of the tiger, do you remember what the last question in the tiger is before we get the refrain, tiger, tiger, burning bright again? The climactic question. Did he, yeah, what is it? Yes, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? So the shock in the tiger is the same God, if the rhetorical question um, has as yet, yes as its answer, the same God who made the lamb made the tiger. And so the lamb is innocence, innocent as a lamb. The tiger is the pure spirit of destruction. Um, the tiger, is, the lamb is, is mild, he is meek and he is mild. He became a little child, the god who made the lamb. The tiger is the figure of wrath. Were they really made by the same god? Well, one is a figure of innocence and the other of experience. Um, another example, and this is um, an, uh, an oddly... Um, skewed pairing is the innocent poem, The Divine Image. So divine image means something like the image of God. To mercy, pity, peace, and love all pray in their distress. And to these virtues of delight return their thankfulness. So the innocent claim is that we all pray to mercy, pity, peace, and love when we're distressed. And these, these virtues of delight we are thankful for. For mercy, pity, peace, and love is God, our Father dear. And mercy, pity, peace, and love is man, his child and care. For mercy has a human heart, pity a human face, and love the human form divine, and peace, the human dress. So that's humans take the form, and love is the human form divine, where he's echoing, remember the phrase from Milton, the human face divine. Here it's the whole human form. Then every man of every clime that prays in his distress, prays to the human form divine, love mercy, pity, peace, and all must love the human form in heathen, Turk, or Jew, where mercy, love, and pity dwell, their God is dwelling too. So if Wheaton College in Illinois, if you tried to teach this poem at Wheaton College where that woman was fired for saying that Muslims and Christians pray to the same God, um, you couldn't teach this poem either. Um, but that's a beautiful song of innocence, that God is a figure of mercy, pity, peace, and love. And we see it in the human form, which is also God's form. Now, there is a poem in 
um, which we won't, which I didn't um, scan, in the Songs of Experience called a, um, sorry, a divine image, but it's not actually the paired poem to the divine image. Um, so that's where the skewing goes. There's a poem with a very similar title, but it's not paired with it. The poem that's paired with the divine image is, in fact, this mirror image, or non-image, the human abstract. So the divine image, the only thing that's left as a kind of um, pivot for the relation of those two poems is the word the. The divine image, the human, not divine, abstract, not image. That is, this is a summary of everything human. And here is the very bitter experienced version of people like ourselves. Pity would be no more if we did not make somebody poor. So that's an Aristotelian idea, unmerited misfortune. So why do we feel pity? You may feel good about feeling pity. You may feel good about yourself that you feel pity. That's what the Song of Innocence implies to mercy, pity, peace, and love, all pray in their distress. And these are virtues of delight. Mercy, pity, peace, and love. But now, this furious, angry, rightly, justly furious, justly angry figure who is giving us the songs of experience says, you think pity is a good thing? Pity would be no more if we did not make somebody poor. And mercy no more could be if all were as happy as we. And as for peace, mutual fear brings peace till the selfish loves increase. So peace, peace gives you a matrix or soil for selfishness to grow in. Then cruelty knits a snare and spreads his baits with care. He sits down with holy fears and waters the ground with Tears. So cruelty establishes religion, tells people to be fearful of God. And holy fears, the word holy there is like justly in Pope. That is, it's a scornful word on Blake's part. He sits down with holy fears, cruelty does, and waters the ground with tears. Then humility takes its root underneath his foot. Humility, again, is that the poor should be humble and believe what their betters say. Soon spreads the dismal shade of mystery over his head. So humility grows up and spreads a dismal shade over the head of um, cruelty. And the caterpillar and fly feed on the mystery. Um, caterpillar and fly there mean religious parasites that is, uh, members of the church who are parasitical on their congregations, and they feed on the mystery, and it bears the fruit of deceit, ruddy and sweet to eat. And the raven his nest has made in its thickest shade. So that's his description of human institu institutions of human so-called morality, the church primarily, but the state as well. The gods of the earth and sea 
sought through nature to find this tree, but their search was all in vain. There grows one in the human brain. So the gods that might seek to cut this tree down because they are the true gods of earth and sea, that's one possibility for those mysterious last lines, um, can't find the tree because it's in us, inculcated in us by the teachings that we were subjected to when we were innocent. We were innocent, and the result was that we were fertile ground for the evil teaching of the greedy controllers of the world. That's part of Blake's anger in the songs of experience. I want to give you a couple of more examples now, because once you see that, you can start seeing what it is that's really subtle about the songs of innocence, how the very, how that anger which comes out, which is obvious in the songs of experience, is already there, although a little bit harder to see in the songs of innocence. So to take one amazing example, there's the poem, The Little Black Boy. Um, the speaker is the little black boy. Um, I can show you if I can. I hate windows, don't we all? But um, here is um, this is the yeah. Um, Blake's um, Blake published these poems. Um, they were hand painted copies um, with his own illustrations. So this is the way the little black boy appears in an actual copy of the Songs of Innocence. And what you can see in the first page of it is the boy is talking to his mother and he's pointing up towards the tree while you can see the sun in the east. Um, so the poem itself, there's a second page, I'll just show it to you so you can see where it's going to go. This is God, this is the little white boy, and this is the little black boy standing behind him. So here is God who seems conspicuously white, although perhaps not as white as the little white boy, but certainly less dark than the little black boy. The white boy is on God's knees. The little black boy is behind him. And God is looking straight down at the little white boy. They are looking um, each other in the face. Um, the little black boy is there, but not there. Part of that, but not part of that. And that's part of what the poem is about. So back to the text, which is easier to read this way. It's the little black boy speaking. My mother bore me in the southern wild. That would be in Africa. My mother bore me in the southern wild. And I am black, but oh, my soul is white. So if you find that line iffy, if you find that a line you may have to forgive, um, be aware that you're supposed to find it iffy. My mother bore me in the southern wild, and I am black, but oh, my soul is white. White as an angel is the English child, but I am black as if bereaved of light. So... The little black boy is sad that 
he is, even though his soul is white, his skin is black. Whereas the English boy, who we saw in that second illustration, he's white as an angel. So there's the difference. But I am black as if bereaved of light. Hang on to the words of simile here. White as an angel. Not that the little white boy is a white angel, but he's white as an angel. But still, the idea is angels are white. Whereas he, the little black boy, is black as if bereaved of light. He's not actually, perhaps, bereaved of light, but it is as if he's bereaved of light. Then the illustration of him talking to his mother he tells us in the second stanza, my mother taught me underneath a tree and sitting down before the heat of day, she took me on her lap and kissed me and pointing to the east began to say, so, it's, so the sun is just rising. That was the sun that we saw in the east. They're sitting underneath the tree. My mother taught me underneath a tree and sitting down before the heat of day, she took me on her lap and kissed me, and pointing to the east toward the sun, she began to say, look on the rising sun, there God does live, and gives his light and gives his heat away, and flowers and trees and beasts and men receive comfort in morning, joy in the noon day. Again, ask yourself, why comfort? Remember, pity would be no more if we did not make somebody poor. If you get comfort, it's because you need comfort. And if you need comfort, it's because you're oppressed. His mother goes on. And we are put on earth a little space that we may learn to bear the beams of love. So the mother says, yes, earth is hard. But we're put here in what Keats will call this veil of soul-making. And we are put on earth a little space that we may learn to bear the beams of love. And these black bodies and this sunburnt face is but a cloud and like a shady grove. So yes, you're black and I'm black, but don't worry about it. It's only a cloud or a shady grove. Um, and again, you can find this questionable, at least. But again, you're supposed to. That is, what is being said here is what the little black boy is being taught, which is that he is as good as whites, as though what you want to be is as good as white boys, as though it goes without saying that being white is the right way to be, and as though it therefore goes without saying that blacks should aim to be like whites, to be as good as them, to think of themselves as being as good as whites, as though whites are the standard for what goodness is. Blake thinks that's a terrible thing to teach, but he thinks it doesn't look to the teachers as though it's terrible. It looks to the teachers as though they're being tolerant. So what the teachers are saying is, some of my best 
friends are black. I treat them as though they're white. I don't see color, is essentially what the teachers are saying. So, and it's even his mother who's internalized that teaching. For when our souls have learned the heat to bear, the cloud will vanish. We will hear his voice, that is the voice of God, saying, come out from the grove, my love and care, and round my golden tent like lambs rejoice. So this is a promise that eventually he won't have to be black anymore. And then the little black boy tells us what his mother has said, but gives a slight spin on that interpretation. He doesn't even know that he's spinning it, but he gives a slight spin on that interpretation. Thus did my mother say, and kissed me, and thus I say to little English boy, when I from black and he from white cloud free, and round the tent of God like lambs, we joy. He's about to tell you what he says to the little English boy, but the crucial and wonderful moment there is, yes, the little black boy um, is imagining the time that he will be free from the black cloud of his own skin, of his own pigmentation, of his own race, but he also thinks that the English boy will be free from the white cloud of his own skin and pigmentation and race. That is, up until now, what the poem seems to have been teaching the little black boy is don't worry that you're black because underneath you're white. And what the little black boy is actually saying is I'm in one cloud, the white boy is in another cloud. We're both in clouds. We're both covered with clouds, we both want to free ourselves from the clouds that we are in, not as me being black and him being white, but as both of us being human. Those clouds are the clouds of being on this earth. So eventually, we will both be free from those clouds. And that's a lot closer to equality than I am black, but oh, my soul is white which is not a line that you can um, justify, except, and Blake doesn't want you to justify it. Here, we're something closer to something justifiable. All human beings are in clouds, in the clouds of being human and not having transcended this world, the clouds of the material world, whether the clouds are black or white. But he goes on, here's what he'll say, I'll shade him from the heat till he can bear to lean in joy upon our father's knee. So God is the father of both, and the little black boy can shade the little white boy from the heat that comes from God. So that is um, a thing that he can do, something he can, um, a superiority that he has, but a superiority that nevertheless is used in service of the white boy. And then I'll stand and stroke his silver hair and be like him, and he will then love me. So if you don't find that last line heartbreaking, you're not getting the poem. 
which is that even though the boy is on the verge of understanding that they are both in clouds, that there is no difference between the black cloud and the white cloud, he still wants the love of the white boy. He loves the white boy already. He is full of love. He is much closer to love as the virtue of thankfulness, the virtue of delight in the divine image. But the little white boy isn't interested in him. And the little black boy is hoping that eventually the white boy will see. And when that happens, he imagines it will only happen again if I am like him. So once again, at the very end, he's so innocent that he is brought to believing the superiority of the white boy, that his task and goal in life is to become loved by the white boy. So that the line in Paradise Lost that is perhaps the most um, objectionable line when it comes to sexual politics in Paradise Lost, she, he for God only, she for God in him. In this poem, it's the white boy for God only, the black boy for God and the white boy. So that is a song of innocence. The white boy is not the innocent in this poem. The black boy is. The white boy is privileged and has no idea, perhaps, of his privilege, but he has it. The black boy is brought to feel that what he can do, if he's lucky, is get the love of the white boy. And that's a sign of his innocence and therefore the sign of his fragility and the sign of the oppression that the institutions of England in Blake's day are going to bring to bear on all the innocents in this world. Um, we'll do a little bit more about this, but also read Wordsworth for Monday. Hi. Hi. Um, um, what's your last name? Bain. Yeah, so um, I don't, so um, Courtney's going to do yours. Remember, I forwarded to her. I don't think she had done them by yesterday. I did mine, but I don't think she did hers.